Good morning, my name's Nicole Reeves, and it's my pleasure to read uh, to you this morning the Word of God, if you'd stand. We're going to be reading um, from the letter, of, letter to the Galatians. This starts on page 972 in the Black Bibles you can find on the back table. So it's really almost towards the end of the, the book. We'll be reading Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, through chapter 2, verse 10. This is God's word. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God and violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. It's God's word. You may be seated. Uh, this is our second week of this series on Galatians, Fighting for Grace, and we've titled it this way because we feel like uh, to really understand and grasp and live out the implications of grace is a fight. Uh, we all naturally speak the language, our, our, our hearts, the default mode of our hearts is the language of 
of moralism and performance and uh, conditional love, conditional acceptance. If I do these things, then God will approve of me. Uh, Then my family or my peers or whoever I want to impress will approve of me. If I do these things, then I'll be able to look myself in the mirror and feel good about myself. It's it's a a natural mode of self-achievement, self righteousness. That's the default mode of the heart. And so the gospel of grace comes along and says that you can be accepted freely and graciously on the basis not of your performance, but on the basis of Jesus, that Jesus Christ came and lived a sinless life and then died on a cross and then was rose, arose again, was risen. And that that truth can give you acceptance before God. That truth can bring you into a a unity with other people where you're not trying to fight for approval, but you all have it in Jesus' name. And it allows you to look at yourself in the mirror and go, I'm okay because God has declared that I'm okay in Christ. It gives you a whole new kind of mindset, a whole new way of living. And it's so unnatural that we've called this the fight for grace. And it's not a new fight. It's a fight as old as humanity is. Uh, In fact, one of the earliest letters of the New Testament is this book of Galatians that Paul is writing, and he is fighting. He is aggressive. Uh, We commented last week that a lot of Paul's letters start out with him saying, Oh, I thank God for you guys. I pray for you all the time, and you're so encouraging. Not this one. This one starts out in verse 6 saying, I'm astonished that you've so quickly deserted him who called you in grace. And you're turning aside to another gospel. You're you're turning back to this life of self-righteousness, of self-achievement. And that's what's going on in this book of Galatians, and Paul is fighting it. The, the analogy that we're using throughout this series that we're, that we're fighting for is we're fighting for gospel fluency. So if the natural language, the native tongue of our heart is self-achievement, self-righteousness, then, then we're trying to learn a new language, a new language of, of grace, a language of the gospel. And uh, my concern is that many Christians are not fluent in the gospel. They know enough to believe it a little bit, and they know enough to kind of recite a few things back about it, but they don't know it thoroughly. They aren't able to think in that language. They're not able to, uh, to, to apply it in a variety of settings and answer unique, specific questions about it. And so that's some of what this series is about, is to try to help us grow in gospel fluency. And, and the most important reason that you need to become fluent in the gospel is so you can speak it to yourself. David Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, wrote this in his book, Spiritual Depression, He wrote, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying you wake up in the morning. I have this experience. I'm sure you do. You wake up and, and your head is just flooded with thoughts. And you don't really even know where they came from. And they're, oh, this is sore. And boy, I'm busy with that. And oh, I got a lot of work to do on this project. And, and oh yeah, and I got to travel. And man, what's going on with the kids today? And who's going to drive this way? Right? And you're just flooded with these thoughts. I mean, you, your feet have barely even hit the floor. And your mind's just rushing. And Lloyd-Jones says that most of the problems in your life, most of the unhappiness comes because you just spend your whole life listening 
to that. Instead of capturing it, Paul said, take your thoughts captive to the lordship of Christ, capturing it and, and talking to yourself, preaching to yourself. Right? So, so instead of letting that happen, to, to begin the day, even as briefly as saying, God, help me remember that you are strong, that you are great, that you love me like crazy, and nothing I do today will make me more pleasing to you. That'll change the whole trajectory of your day, won't it? And so we've got to cultivate this ability to preach the gospel to yourself. Uh, one of the, the opportunities that we're making available for that is um, I'm going to teach a class that I've, I've taught in a couple different uh, settings and, and ways before. Uh, but we're, one of the classes that are being offered, it begins, I think, the first week in February, is a class I'm teaching called Preaching the Gospel to Yourself. It's an eight-week class, and we're just going to go in-depth on a lot of these things and really try to go, how can I, how can I how can I develop this skill, this ability, this language? And so if this is resonating with you, if you're finding that, that God seems to be just uncovering some, some new old truths to you, um, I'd love for you to join, join us in that class. Uh, I'd love to get to know you and spend that time together and help you preach the gospel to yourself as I'm trying to do as well. So here we have this big chunk of scripture. I think this is the biggest passage that we're going to study in this series and I don't know about you, but even, even as we were reading it, did you find yourself kind of like daydreaming about other things, kind of glaze over a little bit, kind of, what, now what are, oh yeah, what are we talking about again? I mean, this, this is a long chunk of scripture. My guess is nobody has any of these verses like on any of their coffee cups. None of you have, you know, crocheted a quilt with any of these verses, right? These, this is not very familiar. Um, this is not, you know, when, when, whenever a group goes around and says, what's your favorite verse of the Bible? None of you go here, right? So, so we got a lot of ground to cover on a, on a passage that I just admittedly is not, unless you're like really interested in Pauline chronology, like I am, <laughs> and like, like three of you are, the rest of you, it's, it's a little like, what are we going to What's he going to say about this? So, so here, here's where we're going to go. I'm going to remind you of the background of this whole book because that is key for understanding this passage today. Then I'm just going to try to retell the story, make sure we're clear on what happened. And then what I want to do at the end is I want to pull out some specific truths that are not just true about Paul's life, uh, but that are true about ours as people of the gospel. So in this passage, we've got probably Paul's uh, longest uh, autobiography and there's a lot of interesting information, and I want to use it a bit as a case study to go, what do we, what do we see about his life that, that can apply to ours? So, so first, let's just recall the background, and this will be key as we're laying the foundation for studying the rest of this book. Uh, this book is written to Galatian Christians. It's written to Galatian Christians. These are people that, that met Paul on his first missionary journey. Paul started the churches in that area, and he is writing back to them. These are people who love Jesus. These are people who would say they have experienced the grace of Jesus. Now, that may seem interesting to you to go, well, wait, if it's about the gospel, some of you, you know, you come from a thing that's like, well, the gospel's for non-Christians, but Christians need moral principles for living. Here's what you're saying. The gospel is for non-Christians. Everyone else needs law. What Paul is going to write in this book is everyone needs the gospel. 
And your inability to obey the law comes from your lack of believing the gospel. So this is a, a book for, uh, for Christians and, and for sure for non-Christians, since you're going to be able to look in and, and see what Paul says about grace. Uh, and here's what's going on here is uh, Paul has planted these churches. And since he planted these churches, some men have come from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was like Mecca. I mean, this was where it all happened. This is where the apostles were. This was where, you know, Pentecost took place. And I mean, this was the hub. And so these, these men come from Galatia, and, or, or sorry, come from Jerusalem. And just because they're from there, their, their word seems to carry weight. And these are men that Paul calls in this letter the Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians who uh, were saying essentially this. Yes, Jesus lived and died and rose again for your sins. But that's not enough to be saved. In order to be saved, you also need to follow the Jewish law. In order to be saved, you also need to become Jewish. Specifically, the issue at hand here, this may have been where you kind of, when you were reading this, go, what's he talking about? Specifically, the issue is circumcision. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant uh, that the Jews had had forever. And so in order to be a, a Jew, uh, right, when, when, when Abraham believed in this promise, God says, okay, now, now go be circumcised. And so he, as an adult, is circumcised. And if you were to be, a, if you were a non-Jew converting to Judaism, you would have to be circumcised. And that's what these Judaizers are expecting now of these new Christians. They're also saying you have to obey certain food laws, eat kosher, that sort of thing. That'll become prominent in next week's study. Um, so, so essentially what they're doing is they're saying it's Jesus' death on the cross plus. And Paul is not willing to accept anything more than Jesus Christ on the cross because that is the true gospel. The, the, the idea of grace, this is why it's so scandalous, this is why it just doesn't make sense, is that there's nothing you can do to get it. Right? If it's Jesus alone, then Jesus gets the glory. Jesus gets the credit. It was sheer grace. If it's Jesus plus my actions, then I get a slice of the credit. I get a piece of the pie. That's why it's so attractive. That's why people are so eager to believe it. That's why every other religion and system of belief in the world is a version of that. It's your effort. And, and so what's going on here is this, is this is severely undermining the reputation of Jesus. It's severely undermining the truth of the gospel. And so Paul is going to fight for it. He's going to say, no, 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 it's not Jesus plus. It's Jesus is enough. Here's the other thing that's happening. Is this has created incredible ethnic and racial tension in this church. Uh, we'll see next week uh, issues related to this, in particular as it relates to the Apostle Peter. But what's happening is, is, is people are dividing up by Jew and Gentile. And the Jews are saying, well, we can't associate with people that aren't circumcised and that aren't eating kosher. And so even though the gospel of Christ is supposed to humble all people and bring all people together under the banner of Jesus because we're all saved by sheer grace, instead of that, they start to look down their nose at one another. They start to divide up. And so this begins to undermine the unity that we should have in the gospel. So they're bringing this, this, this additional message, this gospel plus, and Paul's re refusing to have it. The other thing they're doing, uh, by way of introduction here, is they are, uh, they're attacking Paul. See, the way you attack Paul's message 
is you attack him personally, right? Don't you see this in all the political ads that we're, that we're about to really enjoy? Oh, thank you, Jesus, for all the ads, right? And uh, just wait, they're coming, right? And, and, and what do you do if you want to attack your opponent's message? Do you attack his message? Kind of. But how do you do it? You attack him. Right? And, and frankly, there's lots to attack. Right? There's lots of things, and they stick, and they have resonance, and everyone goes, oh, we're going to run a positive campaign. Yeah, right. And then the negative stuff works. And so what's happening is, is the, you know, the Judaizers have taken out, you know, they've developed super PACs, and they're going after Paul, right? And, and they're attacking his character, so to speak. And so Paul is, is defending himself here. He's saying, no, you have to understand, my gospel came from Jesus. I was commissioned by Jesus. Uh, the message that I am proclaiming is the same message that the, the apostles are proclaiming. I'm not on trial here, but he's defending himself. So, so that's, the, that's the context. Uh, last week, we looked at what is the gospel and why should we fight for it. We saw the gospel in chapter 1, verse 4. Take a look at that in your Bible there. Uh, chapter 1, verse 4. This is the message of good news, that Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Jesus came as a substitute for sinners to deliver, to rescue us out of slavery. Here's what Paul's going to say later in this passage. He's going to say, these Judaizers want to take you back to slavery, but Jesus died in your place to free you from slavery. And he did it according to the will of our God and Father, it says in verse 4. So by, by sheer grace, not because they'd done anything good or bad, but just by the grace of God. And for the glory of God, verse 5, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to God forever. That's just what happens out of the gospel is that God gets the glory and the credit. There's a lot at stake here. He says that uh, any other gospel, this is in 6 to 10, any other gospel is not really the gospel. If you're preaching another gospel, even if he were to preach another gospel, he says, let me be accursed. Even if an angel came from heaven and preached another message, let him be accursed, eternally condemned. He says if you're, if you're preaching another thing, it's because you're trying to please man, not, not Christ. And so then he tells his story, and he's defending that he has the authority uh, to proclaim the message that he's been proclaiming. And so what I want to do here, just because it's, it's a lot of text, is I just want to try to tell the story, okay? Uh, and Paul sets it up in verses 11 and 12. He says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to say here through his story, no one else passed this down to me. Right? Sometimes the accusation will be made against Christians or against the Bible that, oh, well, it's just been passed down, and each time it passed down, it changed a little bit, and kind of like this game of telephone, right, where what we have today isn't really what they meant. And a lot of times that's a way that people used to try to explain that away. You couldn't make that argument with Paul. Because he's saying, I didn't hear it from anyone. I heard it from Jesus himself. So Paul begins to tell his story. He says, listen, I grew up as zealous 
of a Jew as you could possibly be, as religious as you could possibly be. I was advancing far beyond those of even my own age, he says, and I was committed thoroughly to the traditions of my fathers. He's going, you know what? All the places that these Judaizers are wanting to take you in terms of zealous for the tradition, I've been there. I've done that. I see that that doesn't lead towards life. You know, there's two ways to learn from mistakes, right? You can learn from your mistakes or you can learn from other people's. Which is smarter? Right, other people, right? And, and as some of you, your parents, you, you know how frustrating it is, especially for your older kids. You're watching them make the same mistakes you made. And you told them, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. They, there they go. And Paul's going, guys, I was as zealous for this Judaism thing as could be. Like, you couldn't get more zealous than me. He says even, I was violently persecuting the church. I was seeking to destroy it. On a continual basis, the aim of my life was to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. That's what I was about. And then something interrupted him. And it wasn't the apostles going, hey, Paul, you know, I have this message to share with you. It was Jesus himself. And you can read in the book of Acts about how Jesus knocks Paul off his horse as he's on his way to Damascus to kill more Christians. And Jesus tells him, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he, he, says, he gives him grace there and he forgives his sin there and he tells him that he is going to proclaim this good news to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jewish. He says even as well, you're going to suffer as you do it. And he commissions uh, Paul it says, verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul was saved by Christ so that he could tell others about Christ. That's what it was for. He, he, he had a message now that he could share. And he says, now when this happened, now get this, he, who did he hear it from? He heard it from Jesus himself. And Jesus has commissioned him as an apostle, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He says, when that happened, I didn't go talk to anybody. I didn't go consult with anybody. I didn't go uh, to someone else or some other leader or some other really important person and go, you know, I, I'm not sure if I really heard from Jesus. Will you affirm this for me? He goes, no, I heard it from Jesus. I know I heard it from Jesus. There were people there who saw it. I didn't go consult with anybody. Instead, I started doing what God called me to do. So he goes away into Arabia, it says. And uh, he goes away into Damascus. And instead of going to Damascus to kill the church, he starts building it. It's interesting, uh, this thing on Arabia. Um, there's only another, one other reference to Arabia in the New Testament, and that's at the, it, towards the end of the book of Galatians. It talks about Mount Sinai in Arabia. This has led some commentators to speculate and to wonder, was part of Paul's time in Arabia spent on Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law from God. Is it possible that Paul was trained in the gospel on Mount Sinai in Arabia? But we don't know. Just speculation. But you would think that someone of this prominence, I mean, this, is, this guy's famous. He's notorious, right? I mean, he is known for killing Christians. You would think that, like, as quickly as possible, he would get, like, on stage, right? I mean, this, this would be like Osama bin Laden becoming a Christian, right? And, and, and 
how quickly would we have him on the speaking circuit? Like that, right? Not Paul. He's not after that. He's just after doing what God has called him to do. And so he's in Arabia. He's doing ministry in Damascus. He, then after three years, it says in verse 18, he finally decides to go up to Jerusalem. Spends a little bit of time with Peter. Doesn't really see many of the other apostles, right? You get the idea that, that Paul's apostleship is dependent not on men, but on God. And this is important as he's defending himself from these arguments. He keeps doing his ministry. It says in verse uh, 21, he went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That's Antioch and Tarsus. Became part of the church at Antioch and uh, was sent out from there to begin his ministry journey. And you see, even in that, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction or connection uh, with these Jerusalem apostles. He even says, verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Well, how long did that last? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, that's probably 14 years from when he was first converted. So, so the most notorious killer of Christians ever is converted and sent to, to, to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And yet he's doing it kind of anonymously, just faithfully, keeping his head down, doesn't need a lot of recognition, doesn't need to be part of the inner circle, isn't after any of that, just being faithful. Isn't that amazing? Ah. How many times, just, just to apply that to us, how many times in our lives, in our ministry, do we want to do good, we want to do blessing, as long as it's seen by a lot of people? As long as it gets a lot of pats on the back. Here Paul is, just unknown ministry, content to do what God has called him to do, and not really worried about whether he's saying the right thing because he heard it from Jesus. And then, it says, 14 years after that conversion, he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, a lot of people have questioned about when this is. And if you read the book of Acts, uh, you may wonder about some of the chronology of what this is. It seems like uh, this is the visit that is described in Acts chapter 11. Uh, because it says in, in chapter 2, verse 2 here, he says, I went up because of a revelation and set before uh, them, those who seemed influential, uh, his gospel. So, so Paul does not go to Jerusalem because he's been summoned by headquarters. Right? It wasn't like corporate called and said, Paul, we need to talk, we need to meet you, we need to check you out. No, it wasn't that. Why did he go? He says because of a revelation set before him. Probably the revelation, same revelation that the prophet Agabus in Acts chapter 11 has, which said that a famine was coming and that the Gentile churches needed to pool together some money to support the poor in Jerusalem. That's probably what this was. And so Paul goes with Barnabas and with Titus, a couple guys that probably the Galatian churches knew, and he goes and he goes on this journey. And when he gets there, he says something really interesting. He says something that when you first read it, if you've been following Paul, will catch you off guard. Because remember, Paul up to this point, listen to what he said, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me, preached by me, is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And then Paul says something here in chapter 2, verse 2, that should just 
catch our attention a, a bit. Here's what he says. He says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. Uh, interesting here, Paul a uh, couple of times mentions those who seemed influential. Yeah, Peter, James, John, pillars of the church, I guess. I mean, there's kind of a you know, you get the sense here, Paul's not afraid of anybody. In fact, what we're going to study next week is Paul publicly rebuking the apostle Peter, the rock of the church, because even he was falling into hypocrisy, right? So Paul's not like afraid of a bunch of people. So here's what he says, verse 2, I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Huh? You tracking this? Paul's going, I received my apostleship from Jesus. I received the message from Jesus. I didn't receive it from anybody. And then it sounds like just that sort of the first reading of, of verse 2 that he's saying, but then I got to Jerusalem and my knees were knocking and I sat before them because I just wasn't sure if they would really approve of what I've been saying for 14 years. Do you think that's what Paul's saying? See, see here, here, here's what happens, uh, j- just sort of a personal thing. When you study the Bible, anyone ever, like, read the Bible and you don't get it? Oh, all of you get it. Okay, I'm the only one, so sorry. So when that happens, you, you would ha- most of the time you just rush to a study Bible, or rush to commentary, or rush to, which de- just deprives you of the opportunity to actually learn it and remember it and, and do that. And so, but one of the things that happens when you're reading the Bible, when you come to something that just doesn't make sense, where do you have to look for the answer? Okay, more in the Bible, specifically in the context. You've got to know what's going on. Well, the context of this eliminates the possibility that Paul is, uh, you know, scared that perhaps, he, you know, he's, maybe he's got it wrong all these years and he's setting it before them. There's no way that that's what he means. Because he said, it didn't come from men, it came from Jesus. So he doesn't mean that. So what does he mean? It seems that Paul's concern is not that he got the message wrong, but that the church in Jerusalem, even the apostles, might start to compromise. And if that happened, then practically, I mean, this is a practical concern, if that happened, then he would have run in vain. His ministry to the Gentiles saying, you can be accepted by free grace, would be undermined by by the Mecca. His his message that we are one in Christ, not a Jewish church and a Gentile church, but one church, one spirit, one Lord, that that message would be undermined by the compromise possibly in Jerusalem. See, he says in verse 4 that some brothers had, had some so-called brothers had been secretly brought in, some false brothers, to spy out their freedom and bring people into slavery. So there's this work going on in the Jerusalem church, not by the leaders, but this undermining factor. And Paul goes to set before them his gospel to say, we're on the same page, right? Not like, am I getting it right? But like, are, are you guys still holding fast to what's true? He's going, I didn't waver for a second, he says in, in, in verse 5. To them we did not yield to the, these false brothers. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now he does something else that's very interesting. He takes with him Titus. 
Now, he doesn't explain who Titus is, so the Galatians probably knew who Titus was. And he says Titus is a Greek. Titus is a non-Jew. Titus is therefore uncircumcised. So uh, he, <laughs> you just got to wonder, what, what is Titus thinking? I mean, they're going up to Jerusalem. Hey, Titus, come with me. We're going um, to give this money to the Jerusalem church. And I'm hearing all this stuff about some false brothers wanting to get Gentiles circumcised. So I want you to come with me. <laughs> I think Titus is like, Are we okay? Am I gonna like are they gonna attack me? I mean, what's right? So and, and it's like Paul has this case study, is this real live Gentile, filled with the Spirit, loves Jesus, adores Christ, right? And, and he's it, it's as though he's gonna go, look, this is what the true gospel produces. You're gonna to try to add something to him, you false brothers? And to the Galatians, he says in verse three, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So I don't think Paul ever thought that they would make him be circumcised because Paul knows the true gospel. So there's no way they're going to add this to him. And in fact, they don't add anything to Paul's message. Paul says in verse 6 that those who uh, seemed influential added nothing to him. On the contrary, they extended the right hand of fellowship in verse 9. They affirmed the work that God was doing. They saw the grace of God in Paul and in his life, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. I just find it fascinating, this, this line that Paul is walking here. You just kind of get inside his head a little bit. Because on one hand, he's saying, it doesn't matter what the other apostles believe. I got this from Jesus. And on the other hand, he's saying, but the apostles and I are in line. And so you Judaizers who are saying we're on different pages, you're wrong. I got this from Jesus. I was converted by Jesus. I was commissioned by Jesus. My message was affirmed by these apostles. There was confirmation. The one thing they add, verse 10, was to remember the poor, the very thing that he was eager to do. That was probably the whole reason he was there, was to collect money from the Gentile churches and give it to the poor in Jerusalem. So he says, yeah, I'll keep doing that. And that becomes a major part of his ministry as well. So that's Paul's story, strategically told to make some points to these Galatians, to help them see that he has authority to speak this gospel. Now what I want to do for the remaining time, when we've got some good time left, I want to I unpack some, some lessons that we see from this that can apply to us, that can help us understand the gospel and, and how Paul's experience of the gospel and our experience of the gospel is fundamentally the same. So there's three things that the gospel creates that we see in this particular uh, passage. And uh, the gospel creates more than these things, but this is what's listed in this passage. So uh, if you're trying to figure out, has the gospel impacted my life? These would be at least three things to evaluate. So are these th have these three things been created in me? And if they're not, then I, then I hope that by God's grace you could begin to experience them. Here's the first thing that the gospel creates is the gospel creates an experience of radical grace. The gospel creates an experience of radical grace. See, see Paul doesn't just uh, kind of begin to subscribe to a, an idea of Jesus or a philosophy or a system of belief. 
He has an experience with the living Christ. Have you had an experience with God? Have you had an experience that you, where you know God has showed up in your life and has given you radical grace, right? This is an experience of radical grace. Now that is a bit redundant because grace is inherently radical. It's so countercultural. It's so mind-boggling. This idea of unconditional love and acceptance through Jesus, that is by itself radical, isn't it? That is radical. And here you have Paul, whose ambition is to destroy the church, receives radical grace so that now he becomes the primary mouthpiece to build it. This grace is so radical, Paul says, that it began before he was even born. Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Verses 15 and 16 give us three things that happen to every Christian. When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Paul's saying before I was even born, before I had done anything good or bad, not because I earned it, not because God looked down the quarters of time and thought that I would be a really good guy, because I wasn't. But before I was born, he set me apart. And then even after I lived this life of disobedience, even while Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned, and everyone was laying their garments at my feet, and I was giving approval, even after that, God called me by his grace. And he gave me a message to proclaim. Listen, you're not more sinful than Paul. Probably. And, and here's what this tells us. This tells us that no one is so good that they don't need grace. And no one is so bad that they can't receive it. No one's so good that they don't need it, right? Like, like I'm just great and I've never, you know, and we, we just need more of you around. You just fly in with your, you know, superhero cape on. No, no one is so good that they don't need it. And no one's so bad that they can't receive it, right? Paul is the chief of sinners. Can you imagine what it would be like for Paul in that moment when he sees Jesus and he realizes that everything he's done has not only been misguided, but has been radically evil to God himself? And then he's cleansed. He's made new. He's given the Spirit of God in him. It's an experience of radical grace. Have you had that? Can you look back either to a moment in time or a season in time or just even over years of your life where you see that you have been washed of sin, that you've been given a new life in Christ, that you have, in spite of your sinfulness, experienced undeserved grace? Have you tasted that? I, 
I hope you have, and I, and I hope if you have, that, that again, this would cause you to marvel in it and to wonder in it. And, and I pray for those of you who haven't, that this would be a time that if you are sensing that through this, God is, is, is drawing you, God is perhaps doing what he did to Paul, that at this moment, perhaps, God is calling you by his grace. He's revealing his son to you. He's allowing you to see who Jesus is, that this now would be an experience of grace. The gospel creates that. The gospel doesn't just create really good, disciplined, moral people. It creates people who've been wowed by an experience of grace. Here's the second thing that the gospel creates. The gospel creates boldness and humility at the same time. The gospel creates boldness and humility at the same time. We see this in Paul's story. We see, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 10, the identity that Paul has as a follower of Christ. Who does he see himself to be? Look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word servant means bondservant. It means slave. It means one who exists to serve and please another. What is Paul's identity? Paul's identity is that he is the Messiah's slave. And with that new identity, he now has boldness and humility at the same time. Right? Look at how bold he is. I mean, he, he is going before the pillars of the church and saying, you guys, you guys aren't falling astray, right? He's going to confront Peter publicly to his face. Courage. Right? right before this, he has said, you'll be accursed. Some of you are accursed because you're preaching a false gospel, he's saying. That is bold, right? That, that was not in how to win friends and influence people. I mean, this is courage. This is bold. Where does he get that? Because he's the Messiah's servant. He's the Messiah's slave. He's not speaking for himself. He's not representing himself. He's, he's representing Jesus. So there's boldness and there's courage. But there's also humility. Right here you have this, I don't need to be part of the big mix of things. I don't need to be in the know. I, I don't need to you know, have the apostles pat me on the back. And, and you see his unbelievable humility all throughout his entire life of serving and pouring himself out and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Why would he do that? We had boldness because he was the Messiah's slave. He has humility because he's the Messiah's slave. And I'm just a slave. I'm just a servant. I don't deserve anything. Right, Much of the unhappiness that is in our life, if we go back to the Lloyd-Jones quote, is that the voices we're listening to are telling us, I deserve better. I don't deserve this. I deserve a comfortable life. I deserve a happy life. I deserve everyone else to meet my needs all the time. And you listen to that voice. Does that happen in your life? No. So you're unhappy and you're frustrated and you have not yet taken on the identity to go, I'm just a slave. I'm here to serve Jesus. I don't need the recognition. Just for him. 
See, it gives you boldness and humility at the same time. And, and moralism and religion can't do that, right? If, if you are basing your life on your achievement, which says, if I achieve this, then I'll know I'm something, then I'll have God's approval, then when you're achieving it, you're very bold, right? You go, I, I come to church every week, I serve, I give, I read my Bible, I tell people about Jesus, I work hard at my job, I spend time with my kids, I date my wife, I da-da-da-da-da, right? And, and you are bold, and everyone should be like that. But you're not very humble. Because you, your whole identity has not been, I'm the Messiah's slave, it's, I'm a person who does the right thing. So when you're doing it, feel awesome. You're bold. You're, you're, you're telling everyone else how to live their life. You're not humble. You're, you're, you're looking down. You're condemning people who aren't as good as you. But then when you fail, when you blow it, when things kind of start to unravel on you, you're humble. <sighs> I'm such a failure. I, I mean, I, I can't even do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. And, and you just, you, you beat yourself up, but there's no boldness. See, only in the gospel are you able to become someone who is bold because Jesus is for you, but humble because you know that you don't deserve it. Has the gospel created in you? Those of you who would call yourselves followers of Christ, boldness and humility? Are you able to stand up for what's right, for the glory of Christ, regardless of what people think? And at the same time, are you you humble enough to not need a bunch of credit? not need to be the center of attention. The gospel should create that. Here's the last thing the gospel creates we see in this passage, is gospel creates loyalty to the glory of Jesus. Loyalty to the glory of Jesus, right? If you are the Messiah's slave, then you live for him. You live to exalt him. You live to make much of him. And that's what's at stake here. Paul says in verse 5, when, when this issue of, are we going to budge on this? He goes, yet to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The truth of the gospel that it is salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We're going to fight for that, he says. We're not going to back down even for a moment. Because the glory of Christ is at stake. Mike Shea says this. He says this hard-headedness of Paul, this hard-headedness is for the sake of the gospel, not for personal selfishness. Ungodly men defend the doctrine of grace because it lets them do what they want. But godly men defend the doctrine of grace because it magnifies the work of Christ. Paul is fighting for this. He's not fighting for it so you can be selfish, right? He's even going to say when we get to chapter 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Your freedom is because the glory of Christ is at stake. The gospel, that, that's, what's, that's what's it for. So, so let's, let's talk about us then. Has the gospel created in you a loyalty to the glory of Jesus? Where when you're trying to make decisions about what to buy, what to drive, and where to live, and who to befriend, and how to use your time, is the glory of Christ at stake? 
So to say, in whatever I do, whether I eat or I drink, in everything, it's for his glory. All of life is all for him because I'm just the Messiah's slave. That's what the gospel creates. Bold, humble, living for Jesus people who know that everything they have is just a gift. And there is unbelievable freedom and joy there. It's the example of Paul. It's what every Christian can and should know through the gospel of grace. And I pray that even now, if you're feeling guilty, you're feeling condemned, that you would go to that gospel, that you would remember that Jesus gave himself to deliver you from whatever that sin is that you're still holding on to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, uh, for Jesus, and we thank you for the way you uh, have preserved your gospel. God, I thank you that Paul's gospel is not different from Peter's gospel or James' gospel, but that it's one true message of good news, message of deliverance, message of grace for people who need it. And so, God, we thank you for that. God, I pray that you would um, use this message to create in us humility and boldness, God, that we would be courageous, and that everything we would do in front of people and in the privacy, uh, where only you see it, God, I pray that all of it would be all for you. In Jesus' name, amen.